Welcome back to Pandemic Pass. This is the last episode of the SidePod Pandemic Pass, a, a production of Ed's Not Dead Media. Uh, my name is Casey Siddons. I am your host, and this is uh, the final episode of the side series Pandemic Pass. And this episode is called uh, really, really big picture stuff. It's, it's called The Work, because it's all about the work that we need to do as a school systems to move forward. And I'm joined by the wonderful, incomparable, uh, for the first time ever for Pandemic Pass, we have a co-host, Serenity Moore. Welcome. Thank you for having me, Casey. Thank you for having me. I appreciate this opportunity, for sure. Uh, I'm, I'm glad that you're able to carve time out of your busy schedule to to, to do this. Um, what, did you, what do you think about being on your first podcast? You know, now that my uh, heart rate has settled a bit. Um, <laughs> Why? I, Why has I, your heart rate up? What happened? <laughs> you know, as I shared with you, I just didn't want to lose control and fall out of this a Zoom meeting with excitement from meeting Zaretta. So I'm just really happy to be in this space for sure. And 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 so you 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 gave some of it away a little bit, but that's okay because I I teased it on our podcast uh, Ed's Not Dead last week where uh, we were interviewing. Uh, my plan was to interview from the beginning was to get Zaretta Hammond for the last episode and it worked and uh, she agreed to come back on and um, so this particular episode I I wanted Zaretta to come on because not only is her work with culturally responsive instruction just important and and, uh, integral to our work to talk about it's important in this frame of you know, we're going to talk with Zreta about learning loss and flipping that mindset and to talk about how that represents um, deficit thinking and, and things like that. So it's a, it's a really fun and informative interview. She certainly made us get smarter. But Serenity, what was your, you know, what was your big takeaway from talking with Zaretta about all this, um, you know, pandemic past stuff? You know, I think I had two really big takeaways. And um, one is just simply about the approach and making sure that we approach this differently. And by differently, I mean, we should be approaching it the way she is suggesting, which is just slowing down. Yeah, slow down. Just slowing down. We're in a pandemic and, you know, many of us are trying new things and taking instructional risks, but let's slow down and really just assess if these instructional risks are high leverage practices. And so we can't do that in day one or month one. We have to really sit back and digest that process. And I think that is just directly connected to her statement of, you know, learning from the spark, right? If we see something that is highly effective, let's slow down, (laughs) unpack what that highly effective practice is, and then let's scale it out, right? Yeah, I, and I, I totally, she flipped me around in a couple ways because something that Robbie has talked about on the podcast before in the middle of the pandemic was something similar where it's like, hold on, you know, kids are always learning. Kids' brains are designed to learn. So Absolutely. the human brain is designed to learn. So whether, you know, we're in a school environment or you're sitting at home in your PJs doing doing learning, uh, doing your classwork work. They're, they're getting information, they're learning. Maybe it's not exactly where we want them to be, but um, the, the quote that stuck out to me was she, she talked about, we're just in a different season of learning, which mm-hmm. I, I stuck with me. Mm-hmm. And you know, as a, as a person who's been in the classroom for years and education, this has been my thing that I'm always trying to get better about. 
just this idea, which really should be central, is we are just elevating the participation of the parent, right? right? And how we need to be more intentional and explicit about that as not just a district, but as a classroom teacher, as a school level. So that is, it, it doesn't feel like it should be groundbreaking, but it really is groundbreaking because schools are charged with having to do so many different things right. that sometimes we try to move as if we, it, as if it isn't a necessity to partner right. properly with a parent. And I, 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 I was, <clears throat> I thought it was so funny, uh, not funny, but interesting when she's talking about the, the, the fact that we need to, we systems have been talking about it for years, but we need more support. We need wraparound services. We need this, these, these staff, it's really comes down to staffing, right? Mm-hmm. Where it's like, yep. instead of having one counselor for 200 kids, we need one counselor for 50 or hundred kids. There needs to be more counselors. There needs to be more people in the building to do the work that really, as you know, as a classroom teacher, that uh, oftentimes teachers are tasked with doing on an informal basis. We're the counselor, we're the nurse, we're the psychologist, you know? Right, right. And so. if a school has, a, your, your point is so uh, well received because even if we have a school psychologist, frequently that school psychologist is shared, not just with the 200 kids in that building, right. but across two or three schools. If a and district so, even has the money to pay for it. If a district right. even has the money. Right. So we, we do need to reprioritize what is important. And what I hope, after this experience of students learning at home is that parents, families, communities, political leaders are willing to truly fund schools the way they need to be funded. Right, yeah. Because now they realize, oh, this is what has to happen for learning to happen for my kid. So I hope that they are more willing to even partner with with school districts to provide the resources that they need. Well, uh, that's a perfect end cap to transition into. We're, you, you and I are always working on our transitions when we teach together, right? Always, uh, Casey. <laughs> so uh, that's a perfect transition into uh, the interview. So uh, the interview is, is is a great interview. I think uh, our listeners are really going to enjoy the time with Zaretta. She is just a dynamic person. And and I've said this before, but she she we, we were fangirling a little bit before the interview, but she's just she's a genuinely good person and a down-to-earth person. And uh, I think you're really going to enjoy the interview. And I hope um, if you have feedback or questions, pop them into iTunes. Let us know what you think. And uh, let us know feedback on Twitter and Facebook, where you find, wherever you find your podcast. So uh, enjoy, and we'll enjoy. catch you on the flip side. Welcome, 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 Zaretta Hammond. It is such a pleasure to have you back on the show. Uh, although it's not the full Ed's Not Dead, I'm, I'm just super pleased that you're taking the time before you head into your 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 so-called writing cave again. So we're, we're so happy to have you. And we're also joined by my special co-host, my friend, Serenity Moore. Uh, so Serenity, would you mind saying hi? And then Zaretta, welcome, welcome, welcome. Hello, everyone. I'm so happy to be here, and I'm honored to have the opportunity to work with Casey again, and then just um, super excited to have the opportunity to have a conversation with Soretta Hammond. (laughs) Yeah, and I'm super excited to be here. It's always good, you know, to be able to get together with other educators who are thinking about how we better serve families and kids. So I always welcome the opportunity. And, And, you know, this, as we've talked previously, like this, this whole side podcast is all about 
you know, we have some time and space before all schools are reopening and before we start sending all kids back to start really thinking critically about what are we going to do to repair the damage that has been wrought that we don't even know about yet from our kids. And uh, so the first question that we have for you is, is, is about this very point. So understanding all the complexities that have come about because of COVID-19, especially the impact on, on students of color and children who are living in poverty, what, are, what is your take on what this country needs to do at all levels, federal, state, local levels, to ensure that these opportunity gaps that are completely being exacerbated right now are, are closed? Yeah, I think we, you know, number one, at all levels need to slow our roll because there is um, a tendency uh, when it comes to achievement gaps and inequity and all those sorts of things for us to start jumping to solutions. And I see it already. People are putting out the white papers and the reports and that we should do this. It's like pump the brakes, everybody, because here's the thing. Urgency gets us in trouble because we have a tendency to want to go for quick fixes. The reality is I don't think that, it, you know, it's, it's kind of the, as you just described it, you know, things have just gone so uh, far uh, astray and things are, you know, broken. You know, there's all this kind of doomsday talk about what has happened the past year. What I say is just the breakdown before the breakthrough, because if we're actually committed to equity, then this situation has just revealed to us where the weak spots are. It's also revealed to us where our strengths are. And so as we start to move into this time of what you call repair, I just want us to think a little broadly, because if we go into it with those metaphors, then we are going to lead ourselves to the kinds of things we've done in the past, right? Blue ribbon commissions, all of a sudden everybody's doing the same thing, and our children still aren't reading. Our children still aren't, you know, getting to the next grade level, ready for self-directed, independent, cognitively independent learning. So um, that's kind of the bigger picture. And I think at every level that you just mentioned, federal, state, local, there's something slightly different that people can do that I think will contribute to, you know, a more healthy reimagined education. For example, federal level, you know, help us reimagine what testing looks like. And I don't think it's an either or. Right. We have a lot of people who get on social justice oriented path um, and like, let's throw all testing out. All testing is racist. All people need to remember the history. Right. I came into kind of equity work at the very dawn of education reform. Right. I'm dating myself a bit here. Um, back in the day, right, in the 90s. And schools were not disaggregating data, meaning a school could look like it was like, oh, wow, we're blue ribbon, we're graduating kids, our numbers look good. But when you disaggregated, certain groups of students were not doing well. And we didn't even know how unwell those kids were until right. testing came in. So my point here is, you know, let's just not think of it as, ooh, testing bad, you know, uh, we know it's 
it, it can't be binary. So we definitely need to reimagine, well, what would it look like in a holistic way? What would it look like in a way that it actually is empowering? And that means more formative assessment at the local level. Districts really need to reimagine that. So at the federal level, I think they can really support us mm -hmm. by helping us reimagine. Maybe that's letting you know some of those regulations uh, uh, go uh, reimagining. At the state level, again, are all our schools moving students to be cognitively independent learners? I can tell you doing this work for a long time, Reading scores remain stagnant. Black and brown kids, poor kids, you know, those are reading a grade uh, and a half on average and some even more. It's to the point that we've gotten numb and normalized to it. So I was talking to a teacher recently and she was talking about a fifth grade student and she was saying, you know, she wanted him to be more participatory doing virtual learning. And how could I do that? And as I listened, you know, in a coaching session we had, I asked her, I said, what's his, what's his reading level? She says, oh, he's reading about, you know, uh, mid-third grade level. <laughs> then she just kind of went on, like, how do I get him? I'm like, mm -hmm. let's, let's just pause right there. <laughs> if he cannot take the content in at grade level, right, because we all want to put grade level materials in front of kids sure. this is so important. And it is important. And I say that kind of sarcastically, because, but if the babies can't read the content, why are you putting that? And I'm not saying that our response is to dumb it down. Our response right. is to teach them to read. <laughs> so the reality is pandemic or no pandemic, this marker of equity has remained the same. And it's been there. <laughs> in plain yeah. sight. Yeah, but, but but maybe this pandemic is actually showing us that uh, since it affects everybody, that now that folks are paying attention. I I would hope so. I think yeah. that's the happy you know version of that. The fact that <laughs> it's always been in plain sight, but this is an opportunity for people to recommit to something, mm -hmm. right? I don't want to act like oh now you see that. Well, you've seen it all along. This is what we're talking about. We're talking about dismantling white supremacy culture, right? That from the beginning was hardwired into our education system. Why? Because education in an apartheid state is designed for sorting around racial right. and class lines. We are no different. And because it, as you know, a uh, um, nation, that's where we began. We are mm -hmm. born of apartheid. Right. And we in. have, it, yeah, it, it is not only built in, it is maintained right. <laughs> actively. It just doesn't look the same, right? And so again, I think this is just our opportunity. That's what I would say. The district level, you really have to get to the instructional core. How are schools supporting classrooms? Because that's where the real change, you can do all the testing you want, yep. changing around testing, but the teacher does not know how to coach the student to the next level, move them through their zone of proximal development, where they can take on more of that cognitive load. All the changes at the district, uh, at the state and the federal level are not going to mean a darn thing. Yeah. Well yeah. said. Yeah. I, I appreciate that perspective, Zaretta, um, as a parent and as an educator, because we do have to ensure that we are looking at this holistically in terms of what we can take away from it that will better us. I just think classroom instruction 
has to change post the pandemic, right? Like all of these skills that teachers are learning and building on, they should remain in their repertoire when they when we return to in-person learning fully, if that is something that districts decide to do fully, right? Because I guess that's on the table now also. Yeah. So um, I, w- I want to ask this question, which is um, just centered around holistically again. We aren't the only country that has experienced interruption in education. In our current situation, the world has experienced some level of interruption in education due to the pandemic. What advice would you give parents who are consumed by the losses, I put that in quotations, their children are facing, more specifically, the loss of instructional time, the loss of opportunities to interact socially, especially for students who learn differently, such as students with special needs? I think the, you know, I think we first have to not, continue the idea that they've lost anything, right? I think that's, we're perpetuating that. It's actually become now like a phrase, learning loss, right? <laughs> loss, <laughs> right? We're all putting our spin on the loss. And it's going back and forth, like depending on when you're looking in the pandemic time frame. <laughs> yes. At first it was like, nothing's gone, everything's fine. And then, you know, we're back to it. That's right. It's all loss. We gained nothing. And I think what we need to do is understand that we are now just in a different season of learning. So parents are always the first teacher. Schools have to respect that. Right. And so what we need to do is lean back on that. Uh, Dr. Karen Mapp out of Harvard talks about the dual capacity partnership that we have with parents, meaning we each bring our strengths. And now with parents having to take over so much of that learning, um, I think we have to look to the models of kind of home-based learning that have worked. We're not talking about every child needing to be homeschooled, but more schools need to be including parents in leveraging the the parent as first teacher skill set so that those skills students need to practice and expand in are reinforced and supported in a holistic way at home. That's the benefit. School at home, learning doesn't look like school. So we need to stop this learning loss as if learning only happens in schools, because that communicates the wrong thing both to parents and to students. Because we want students to be lifelong learners. We say that all the time, right? Everybody's strategic plan says it. Go to their web school website. We raise life. Not if you keep saying something's been lost. Because the idea is learning will happen in every, um, you know, environment, in every uh, particular setting. Why? Because the brain is a learning machine. That is its prime directive. So I think being able to help understand what certain populations of students need, and then being able to say, what's the homeschool connection so that students at home can practice in a contextualized, engaging way where intellectual curiosity is stimulated, doesn't have to look like school. I call it the hide the vegetables approach. You know, I've raised two kids. My kids are young adults now, but I remember, you know, you don't want to eat that broccoli. Okay. I'm going to make some chicken and rice. I'm going to get a zucchini. I'll strip it of all the green and I will grate it. And it's just going to look like some rice and I'm going to fold it in there or I'm going to puree that sweet potato and put it in. You don't even know you're getting that in that muffin. (laughs) You know, you're just like, "Mm, mom, can I have another? Absolutely, baby. Right. Genius. Well, and listen, here's the thing. Parents have been doing that forever. (laughs) 
I didn't make that up. I'd love to claim that. But this is my point. Right. Parents raise children that can socialize and walk and talk and are, are self-regulated for the most part. And when they're on the path to that, all learners begin as dependent learners. Mm-hmm. Our job as parents and, uh, and supporting communities is to raise them past the level of dependence to independence. So we need to go back and look at what does that learning look like so it, we can replicate it in schools. And then in, in schools can share with parents, here's how you support reading development. Mm-hmm. Play these games so that students actually can develop phonemic awareness early on. Play these games so students start to uh, learn the uh, decoding for long vowels, right? Long vowels are everything, right? If we don't have to teach anything, teach how long vowels work, because English is crazy language. <laughs> and, and this is my point, right? The larger thing is... We just need to not act like things have been lost. Right. Things have just grown in a different place. And we need to go and find where they've grown, leverage them, and incorporate them into the classroom, into the school community and environment. That's a really refreshing uh, reminder because Casey and I have had this conversation. <laughs> I have two school age. Uh, kids at home. I have a son in third grade and a kid in kindergarten, a daughter in kindergarten. And I am amazed at all of the other skills that she is picking up that she would not have had the opportunity to pick up in traditional in-person learning. And so that is part of the reason why I put loss in quotes, because I do believe there is a unique skill set that they are building that is really going to support their learning moving forward, period, no matter the setting. So, yeah. But here's what I would say, Serenity. They're not unique. We keep mm-hmm. acting like school is the only place and that what we learn in school is legitimate. That's mm-hmm. called practical life. If you look mm-hmm. at Maria Montessori and even the Montessori method right now, they have a whole section called practical life. Mm-hmm. I went to public school. We had home ec. My daughter, who's 24 and now living on her own, she'll ask me a question and she'll say, where did you learn that? And I have said so many times, oh, I learned that in my home ec. So now she actually answers, oh, did you learn that in home ec too? I'm like, by the way, I did, right? So many life skills. And now there might need to be a reclaiming of home ec, right? We might update it, call it adulting, call it financial literacy, call it what you want. But there's a whole host of things that people need to be whole. So even the social, emotional learning and development, the mindfulness, we've truncated that. Yeah to some techniques that look disembodied and decontextualized from the very thing that you're calling unique. They're not unique. This is called mm-hmm. humans living right. a human life. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I, I, I th- you know, it, this totally reflects your, your work on, on when we last spoke about deficit thinking, all the, all the work and research that goes into that. And this is this this very conversation and this flipping of our language is just like how we were doing it before the pandemic and how we should have been responding to the deficit mindsets and thinking that are you know that we hear around in in schools so in the in the frame of your work with cultural responsive instruction and and when we talked about deficit thinking what are what are the what do you feel like are the most important actions that teachers should engage in with students when students whenever they return to traditional face-to-face school and then what do you think 
I'll, I'll let you answer that. And then what do you think that folks should be doing now in the virtual or hybrid setting? Well, here's the thing. I, I think that um, I, when we start talking about culturally responsive teaching, a lot of educators, particularly if they're white educators who have not had a lot of exposure to living in, um, in a diverse environment. I'm not saying living in a diverse city because most people go back to a community that looks very much like them, sure. right? So you can be in your own cultural bubble. Um, but the responsive part of that, everyone can actually start to do it. Who is this kid? What knowledge are they bringing back? So, you know, just in line with what we were just talking about, if there are some new practical life skills that the student actually developed, maybe or they explored art. One of the things I always did for my kids was I sprung them for a day or a week. Like, you don't have to go to school. We're going to go explore. We're gonna, and at a certain point, they're like, Mom, is this legit? Can we actually do that? I'm like, listen. <laughs> I say when you get to go to school or not. So, you know, and that's the reality. It just so happens to take place during uh, testing season. No, no. I'm just kidding. kidding. And here's the thing with my kids, my son did not, they were Montessori kids. My son did not take a standardized test until he was in the third grade. And he came, you know, or maybe fourth grade. He came home. We moved from Colorado to California. He came and said, Mom, we're going to take this thing and we have to fill in these bubbles, you know. And of course, I'd been in education. My eyes just got big. I'm like, just don't make a happy face, honey. Because he'd never taken it. We'd never talked about it. Of course, he knocked it out of the park. Why? Because you're always going to test better when you actually know shit. Excuse me. <laughs> Right. So my my emphasis, especially for my black boy, was, baby, you're going to learn how to learn and you're going to learn some stuff. Let's go have some fun learning. So I always had uh, unschool week. Let's just go learn some stuff we want. And uh, I was not opposed to testing. I was not one of those people who got on the social justice. Testing is wrong. Testing might not be wrong because when we had no testing, white folk were okay with make, letting black and brown children underperform. So let's, yep. Absolutely. Let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater. But mm-hmm. all that to say, we don't need to get so caught up on the culture part. What we need to get caught up in, on is the responsive part. So as you're growing yourself to understand culture in more depth and complexity, where it's not just Culture is not synonymous with talking about race or racial issues. Culture is, how are you organizing information in your head? What information do you have, right? Louis Mald talked about this as funds of knowledge. Mm-hmm. So even our English learners, they may not have a command of English, but they've got a command of whatever those funds of knowledge are. Right. Mm-hmm. How do you help them bring those out? How do you help them while they are learning that new language um, still be progressing as a learner. And there is a way in which we've set it up that, oh, English learners can't be progressing or accelerating because they're still learning English. Well, that's just ridiculous. That's like saying your brain doesn't work. But what happens is we're not sophisticated enough in schools yet where we let go of our pacing guides, let go of the canned curriculum, where we actually can innovate in accelerating their language production at the same time that we're helping them continue to build their cognitive capacity. So just in in terms of what you're talking about, talking about in 
how you really are asking school leaders to just shift their perspective about the experience that we are having right now during this pandemic. Um, we wanted to ask you about um, what would you identify as a silver lining through this process in terms of what are you taking away that is a silver lining from this pandemic for our public education system and, and um, for how this will impact the future generations of students, teachers, school leaders, families, et cetera? Yeah, I think that the first, uh, I can think of like three that I would just say are, are like our, my top. The one is we get to see the system in its, all its strengths and weaknesses. Now, there is a way in which I think we want to quickly move beyond whatever the weaknesses are. And we see this with, it's just learning loss, now let's start to fix it. Versus, let's really do a post-mortem. What worked? And, you know, okay, maybe it was keeping the ed tech tools, right? Every ed tech coordinator was uh, happy that now they had relevance, but also stretched, right? But it's not just about having a jam board or knowing how to use a Nearpod or any of the other tools, because it still is about how we're supporting students. So we know how to leverage those tools. Where were we able to help students feel connected still, even in, as a virtual uh, learning community? Where were we uh, um, not able to do that? And so learn from the sparks, learn, oh, okay, these are things we can, we can uh, replicate, water up, contextualize for different settings. And here's the thing we definitely don't want to do. So I think we need to give the, the postmortem its time. That's the first one, right? People talk about test the metal. That's what you have to do. Testing metal is we actually have to see how the system we say should be equity focus actually works. And when we test the metal of the system, we can now see where it buckles. And that is a blessing. That's a silver lining. It may it's not the thing we want to know, but it's like, oh, now this is where I strengthen this. And the, the, the thing I will um, liken that to is user experience, right? People talk about design thinking, and the user experience, this is actually what that is. When we start to see this is where families felt connected, these are the things we can do. How do we actually take those things and bring them forward? How do we actually make peace with the things we have to let go? Because some of those things we're going to have to let go of have been sacred cows. Yeah. You know, how will the pacing guide be put in the sacred cow pile? <laughs> <laughs> right. I still hear some leaders holding on to, you know, I, I mentioned having, you know, to rethink a pacing guide. And I tell you, this was on a gathering of about 60 educators. And I had the leaders come back and like, why are you saying that? You're being subversive. You're making it hard because now teachers were asking questions. I'm like, if we can't make space for us to be different, it's going to be a little messy. Yeah. Before it comes out, you know, but the postmortem gives it structure. Right. So our messiness is purposeful. So that's the first one. Right. Second one, I think we really do have the opportunity to start to think about um, this reimagining, right? People talk about we're going to reimagine. We, again, have to keep what is helpful. 
But I think we now know we need to put the student at the center, meaning, oh, what this really shows us is we may not have helped the student be as cognitively independent as we thought, right? The students were dependent on the teacher to structure it, to preload it, to help pre-digest it, to direct them to the next steps. But when we flipped that, virtual schooling really said that once we presented that, kids were on their own to make sense of it, to practice it. So all of the skills that we talk about, mindfulness and social emotional learning, self-directed learning, self-regulation, you know, when I'm getting tired and I know I'm not focused, what should I do to kind of fall back and refocus? I know as a writer that that's true. I have to recognize when my juice, you know, my writing juice, and not just the creative part, but like the part for just detailed focus work. So as a learner, those are part of learning how to learn skills. And so I think the silver lining is we can now focus on helping students actually be that independent learner. We've kind of, you know, paved a little bit of that way and we should not get off that path. We should continue to kind of nurture it. Um, and I think the last one is reminding ourselves of how vital teachers are, right? We talk about essential workers. I Listen, I talk to some parents. I know my children are grown and, you know, out of the house. So my nest has been empty for a while. But uh, parents that I know in my circles with younger children, they've given a, a right arm for teachers. Like, oh, I... Under, you know, the t- you know, they, we recognize their value. Well, we need to put our money where our mouth is. And we need to create the conditions for teachers to do that. They have been stretched. They have been put upon. We need to rethink what does it mean to keep them in their zone of genius and not doing every other dang thing that a district doesn't want to pay for. Meaning... We need wraparound services. We need more counselors. We need more nurses. If we want to do social emotional learning well, we need psychologists that aren't there to do paperwork and testing, that are there to be emotional supports, right? All children are going to come back not, you know, feeling some stress. Not every child will have trauma, right? There will be some. So we don't need to dumb that down, but we need to understand that teachers should be coaching students to learn how to learn. And learning is a holistic thing, mind, body, and spirit. So the degree to which we now see the value of teachers, we are at a, a, a decision point in which we're going to just go back. Now, we can look historically to say, as Americans, we've done this before. World War II, we needed ships built and Uh, men were uh, over in Europe fighting and we recruited women to get to the shipyards. I know here in California, Richmond, uh, California, where the shipyards are, that they had women, they created childcare. There was a systematic approach to free women to come and do that work. The minute the war was over, we got collective amnesia. Yep. We shut those childcare centers down. We couldn't realize what? what? Oh, we can't afford it now. We can't afford that. We don't have the money. And not only can we not afford it, we don't know how to do that. Right. Mm -hmm. So the reality is, no, we do. We've done it. Yeah. We We have the capacity. We have the funds. Yeah. And now we just have to put our money where our mouth is in relationship to teachers. So the silver lining is we see the true value of teachers and teachers need to flex. Yeah. 
folks have seen that value, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. And that we're not talking about that's right. We don't need to keep anybody, you know, hostage. But the reality is, we know that teachers are valuable, but we have to keep them in their zone yeah. of genius, and that is to help learners learn to be independent, cognitive, curious learners. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well said, Zaretta. Thank you so much. And and I will like to as a as a kind of closing piece, I, I do want to again thank you so much for your time and, and thank you for coming on to my, my side pod as, as the final episode uh, of, of the pandemic pass. It has been a pleasure having you on and seeing you again and uh, Serenity, uh, if you have any final thoughts, if you want to uh, thank you no. for joining us too. Thank, thank you, Zaretta. This has been great. Thank you, Casey, for inviting me. Zaretta, I'm certainly smarter after this conversation. Yes. And that those are always the best conversations, right? When you begin to look at things differently and on a more elevated scale. So I appreciate your thoughts and your considerations. Yeah, thank you for having me and for such a uh, thoughtful set of questions and, and conversation. Before we get to the credits at the end of this episode, I want to give a, a very special shout out to my co-host for this episode of Pandemic Pass, Serenity Moore. Um, she is a very good friend of mine and someone who I uh, I have much, much respect for and someone who makes me better and makes me want to be and do better at what we do with education and with what we do with students every single day. So special shout out to her for taking the time and carving out the time for her extremely busy day with both work and school. Um, I hope you enjoyed the show and please check us out on edsnotdead.com and give us some feedback and uh, certainly smash that subscribe button as the kids say and we'll talk to you soon. Thank you for joining us on Pandemic Pass. Pandemic Pass is an Ed's Not Dead media production and was written and directed by me, Casey Siddons. Music was written and performed by Peter Crable. Thanks for listening. Be sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It helps others find us. Find out more on our website at edsnotdead.com.